Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. Hi, I'm Boomer. I am Allie. And we are a movie podcast. We meet over the internet to discuss film. And more often lately, we discuss Star Trek, which you will notice in your feed from last time. And uh, normally we talk about unconventional movies by happenstance, but I hear Boomer had a very conventional time out in the world recently. Oh, do we have a badum tish for the sound machine? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, a week ago, I attended GalaxyCon in Austin, which is a generalized science fiction convention um, where uh, it it was mostly Star Trek for me. Um, My best friend and I went, uh, as did her boyfriend. Uh, She went as Seven of Nine from Voyager, and I was the emergency medical hologram. Um, And we went specifically because I had seen a tweet from Walter Koenig, who we know as Chekhov from Star Trek, the original series and those films, um, saying, I'm going to be at GalaxyCon in Austin. Come see me before I die. Uh, He is 87 years old. (laughs) So he is he is getting on up there. um, But I appreciated that he had a sense of humor about it. We were able to get tickets. Um, And I did have an interaction with him. But I'll, I'll I'll get to that in a second. I guess one of the funny things is because of the ongoing SAG after strike, they are not able to talk about any <laughs> Star Trek projects, Weird. or at least any projects that took place under like the under SAG rules. So um, many cast members from the Next Generation were there: Will Wheaton, Gates McFadden, Jonathan Frakes. Brent Spiner, and of course, LeVar Burton. And LeVar is um, often in Austin. I have a friend who uh, used to work at the tour sheets that he went to all the time um, whenever he would come and visit his daughter, who I believe was at UT at the time. And uh, Torchies is, of course, a local Austrian taqueria franchise. I like those fried avocado tacos a lot. Oh, they're so good. Yeah, they are uh, good. And he told us what his favorite order was because, among other things, he could not talk about uh, the next generation. He could not talk about Roots. However, because Reading Rainbow was not produced under uh, SAG, he was able to talk about Reading Rainbow extensively, as well as the podcast that he's on right now. And from the Deep Space Nine cast, there was Terry Farrell, who played Dax, and Armin Shimmerman, who played Quark, as well as, memorably, Principal Snyder in uh, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer television program. He has one line that I think about all the time, which is... um, uh, after after Xander gets possessed by hyenas in season one, um, the original principal of Sunnydale High, Principal Flutie, gets eaten by them. And there's a line that Principal Snyder has, I think, in season two, where he says, that's the kind of woolly-headed liberal thinking that leads to being eaten. And I think about that probably at least once a week, if not every single day. Um, we attended the LeVar Burton panel, as I mentioned, and then the Terry Farrell and Armin Shimmerman. Uh, panel, which again, because they could not talk about Star Trek productions or any other SAG productions, Terry Farrell talked about her sort of introduction to the acting world because she started out as a model. And Armin Shimmerman was originally a stage performer, like a theater performer. And in fact, he did the St. Crispin's Day speech from Henry V, um, which was great. And then I went to the Walter Koenig panel while... um, Kat and her boyfriend went and did a photo shoot with Terry Farrell, where she, in her Seven of Nine costume, um, reenacted the iconic Seven of Nine Jadzia Dax promotional photo from 1997 for TV Guide, (laughs) um, which was a delight. And they surprised me uh, with a photo with the TNG cast, Frakes, Wheaton, 
uh, McFadden and Burton. Um, and then I immediately sent that as a photo to everyone in our group chat because I was I was so pleased with myself. It might be the best photo that's ever been taken of me. It was interesting. Um, all of the other uh, performers who were there, I only interacted really with Gates McFadden. We got there pretty early on and I got her autograph and I was able to tell her, you know, how excited I was that she had come back for the third season of Picard. You know, uh, she asked me what I did and I said I was a writer, but of course, like everyone else in Austin, I work in tech. And, um, you know, she asked me what I wrote and I said that I had finished a fantasy manuscript last year, but that was embarrassing. And she said, don't be embarrassed, which really like, you know, touched my heart. I also had a very brief interaction with Alessandro Giuliani, who I know as Gaeta from Battlestar Galactica. Um, he does a lot of like voice acting work now, and he was in the recent um, Sabrina Netflix program. And I got to talk to him about how I wrote my master's thesis on Battlestar, so that was fun. And I mean, there were a ton of people there. Um, John Wesley Shipp, who was the Flash in the 90s. Chris Sarandon, who we of course know from Child's Play. Um, Bright Night. Friday Night, Princess Bride. Uh, he was there. Uh, Charlie Cox, who portrayed Daredevil on Netflix. Kristen Ritter. The voice of Mario, the English voice of Mario, who was doing like Mario voices for the kids, which was super cute. That is really and cute. And for some reason, four members of the cast of Boy Meets World. Um, <laughs> my assumption is Will Friedle, who played, you know, the older brother on the show, he has done some voice acting work and some nerd stuff. He was the voice of Terry McGinnis on Batman Beyond. And he was a voice on Kim Possible. So I assume that it had something to do with um, him just being like, hey, I'm going to be doing this convention. Is there room for my buddies to come in and sign autographs and do selfies as well? So he was there as well as Daniel Fischel, Topanga. I think the implication is that Boy Meets World is a science fiction show. Right. Yeah. And Matthew Lawrence, who uh, looks great. I mean, all of the Lawrence brothers, they were such like, you know, teen idol icons for like my whole life like my whole uh, you know childhood um and he looks great uh jim shooter who was once editor-in-chief of marvel was there i was like oh my god i thought he was dead but no jim shooter is alive and well and of course walter keenig um so there was a moment where i think he had maybe left to go to the restroom or something and then had been um approached by a person who was working this like sci-fi burlesque photography booth like they do boudoir photography um both like for sessions and for like sales of like people in cosplay doing boudoir stuff um and you know she was like hey come look at the book and he looked at like the book of photographs he was like oh okay and then we were kind of um walking behind him and i was trying to work up the nerve to say something to him he stopped and he rubbed his leg for a second and um, I was like, Mr. Keeniger, are you all right? It looks like your leg is bothering you. Do you need anything? And he was like, I'm just trying to find my booth. So uh, I was like, oh, it's right over here. So I was able to help Walter Keenig find his wow. way back to his booth. Um, my life's mission has been fulfilled. I could not help <laughs> yes. him find the nuclear vessels, but it was a really fun time. Um, yeah, I, that's uh, that was like my big thing that happened since we since we all you met last. Hero. I accept. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird, like how the SAG strike affects things that you wouldn't think about. Like, I was watching a wrestling pay per view last week, and it was really an unremarkable one. It was like a filler pay per view. There's like nothing going on, and John Cena was there. Which, at this point in his career, he only shows up for like WrestleMania and like big time events. I was just like, why is he on TV right now? This doesn't make any sense to me. 
And then like days later, I was thinking about it again. I was like, oh yeah, he's not able to work in his normal career right now. Right. It's just funny how it's like trickling out. It's gone on long enough that people are actually like looking for alternate ways to interact with the public and still make some cash. I was going to say, but... they're about to do AMC movie theater commercials. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's about time for a new one. I'm really tired of seeing Nicole every week. Boo. Ooh. <laughs> Boo. Um, yeah, it is It is interesting. Um, and all of them did, for the most part, stick to uh, the rules. Um, it was interesting because some of them were on panels with people who were part of the WGA. And what was interesting is the the writers could talk about productions, but the actors couldn't because of the strike. And huh. one of the things that they mentioned was it's because the, 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 the studios don't care what writers say. They're like, yeah, they, we can say whatever <laughs> oh we want, God. you know, uh, they don't care what we do. So that was interesting. Um, and uh, Keenig actually did talk about a little bit about like uh, sort of the people who were in his class, his fellow alumni of his graduating year when he was at theater school. Um, and I would not have known this, but he was in the same class as James Kahn, Christopher Lloyd, and most amusingly to me, Jessica Walter. The idea that the two oh, of them were at school God. together. Amazing. Tickles my heart. So yeah, that was that was my experience. Um, as far as like going to the movies and seeing movies, I've actually watched a couple of new releases. I'll just touch on those briefly since um, I've already done write-ups on them. I was able to go and see Blue Beetle, uh, and it actually had a lot of heart. I really enjoyed myself. It was a much better movie than it had any right to be for something that is coming out of DC at this time. And I also watched the um, black exploitation pastiche, They Cloned Tyrone, which I could not recommend more highly. I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. You know, I've been because because we haven't recorded in so long, I've been going back and listening to our old episodes so that uh, we didn't lose the rapport. Oh, you missed us. I did. I really did. Uh, One thing I will say is um, the uh, you mentioned a couple of times, um, Brandon, in some of those older episodes that. Um, you were tired of like the 70s grindhouse aesthetic that you were tired, like that Rob Zombie had been making movies since you were in high school. And you were particularly talking about your feelings about like X and Pearl. Um, and I wasn't sure how that translated to other like 70s genre pastiches, but I would still recommend this one very highly. Um, it has sort of a weird and narratively um, justified uh, sort of timelessness um, that I think you would really enjoy. I mean, arguably, I recommended a 70s pastiche for us to watch today. So. Yeah, I was about to throw that one out there. I was like, well... I get, that's true. We are we are going to get to that, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I have watched is I have now watched uh, the first four Mission Impossible films. Um, I had seen the first two, and I thought I had seen the third one when I was younger, but in watching the third one, I didn't remember a single part of the plot details. And of course, in watching them, I also did go back and read your reviews and your um, perspectives. Oh no, that was, that was like 2015, Brandon. I can't stand by that. <laughs> okay. I, that's fair. Uh, because you and I could not have disagreed more about mission impossible Two. Oh, I hate that movie, but I look, I will admit that it is a bad movie. I, I'm not certain that I've ever had more fun <laughs> watching a movie in my life. Uh, there's something about the John Woo of it all 
the slow motion, the like grabbing of a scarf out of midair. There's so many like car crash ballets. I really want to talk about this one because the plot is just, it's just notorious, really. The Hitchcock movie where, you know, you have the spy and he has to send in this woman who's the ex-lover of the person who has the MacGuffin. And I, I do want to say it's not a good movie. And it's not necessarily a good Mission Impossible movie, but it's like a really good Bond, Fast and the Furious mashup. There's like a lot of car ballet and motorcycle ballet in it that I, you know, really enjoyed. Um, But I I know that it's also uh, indefensible. I do want to say that like my aversion to it, I think, is maybe a personal ick from having grown up in the new metal era when I like fully committed to that aesthetic as like a 13 year old. And now that people are like looking back to new metal and like early two thousands, like Paris Hilton fashion. Oh my God. And like corn songs are in movies again. And Limp Biscuits getting its own, you know, victory lap among the zoomers. I'm like, y'all please stop. (laughs) I mean, we can't stop them. They're young people. They're trying to gross you out on purpose. And that's, you know, it's working. We're trying to ruin my life on purpose because they're teenagers. Yeah. But I think even in 2015, like that stuff did not seem as like cool or fun to return to as it might be now. You know, we've been writing for this website for a long time. I, I, I might have more fun with it now than I did at the time. But a lot of it is just personal embarrassment with like, this is what I thought was cool when I was a kid. And uh, it's like reading an old diary, watching it fed back mm, to me. Okay. I, I get that. Uh, for me, I, the rap rock of it all, which you mentioned in your review is like the least interesting thing about it to me and i we all we're all the same age we all lived through that same traumatizing period in music but i don't think that i ever thought it was cool so it's it doesn't give me like personal cringe it's just like yeah this was the time this was the this was the message of the time um there is something about that uh throwing the oakleys and then they explode in the camera that is just it's so pure it's not good (laughs) but it's there's something very pure about it that having been said people love the third one i think the third one is actually like my personal least favorite i love the first one i love the original it's such a de palma movie and it's so clearly more evocative of a television show style premise like it's not bound up in the chains of having to be part of a franchise it's just a 90s film version of an old tv show and those were like a dime a dozen in those like mid-90s years the flintstones and the fugitive and adam's family and just like beverly hillbillies and the brady bunch it was like constant it was endless and when you think about that first movie as being part of that movement and not necessarily part of like a blockbuster franchise the fact that it exists at all and went on to have such a claim is so strange or at least to have such um legacy if not a claim because there's it has all of de palma's fingerprints all over it there's lots of dutch angles and close-ups and sweating faces And the way that it starts out like an episode of television would, where you get to see sort of a cold open where everybody plays their part, and then they um, uh, set up the next mission and it goes horribly awry, like the subversion of expectations of that is actually like really exciting Um, in a way that like the third one, people really love that one. I understand that people love the Philip Seymour Hoffman performance, but for that one, 
it, there's nothing that's super memorable to me other than his performance. It doesn't have anything in it that really, to me, had the staying power of like the Langley heist or, you know, <laughs> Tom Cruise and that Australian actor, Doug Ray Scott, flying at each other off of their BMX bikes. Like, what a time to be alive. Um, and I will say the fourth one, Ghost Protocol, I think actually uh, might be like objectively the best as a movie of the four that I have seen so far. Um, I appreciated that it had more humor. I appreciated that it was more heisty because we've talked about how we love a good heist. But it, it feels like it's running on all four cylinders in a way that uh, I understand why people felt like that one was really a breath of fresh air that rejuvenated the franchise. So that's my thoughts on the first four Mission Impossibles. Uh, depending on how long it is until we record again, I might be all caught up to the franchise, but that's where I'm at. That's where I'm staying. Allie, what have you been watching? So the reason why we uh, have not recorded forever is my fault. Um, it was my birthday. and for- How dare you be know, born? <laughs> that is the truth, honestly. Um, how dare I? So for my birthday, one of my friends took me out to go see Barbie, and I loved it so much. It was so good. I laughed the whole time. I I don't think I expected it to be as funny as it was, but it was so funny. I'm strongly considering going to see it again, just because there's absolutely nothing in theaters right now. And, you know, it's been a couple months of, like, people having very strong wild opinions about this film to the point where i can't remember the details other than that i laughed the whole time and i thought it was visually beautiful yeah yeah i know a couple of people who've seen it twice and they still loved it both times so i think it's gonna be one of those you know comedies that in the future like we've all seen too many times and where it's still the era of things airing on television it would be one of those comedies i think but yeah, there's so many good gags. Uh, one that really uh, stood out to me and I'm going to think about forever is Depression Barbie. Um, because big relate, especially the <laughs> whole uh, watching the Pride and Prejudice miniseries for like the sixth time. I was like, oh my God, it's me. <laughs> She's literally me. <laughs> because if that's not your depression go-to, you're not living... Don't tell people they're doing depression wrong. They're doing That's depression. Well, they're doing depression wrong <laughs> if you were a side female at birth. You gotta, you gotta watch that <laughs> miniseries. If you're depressed, you side female at birth. You gotta watch the Pride and Prejudice miniseries. It hits a spot. I don't know what it is. It's just a thing. I've exposed younger people to this thing. They've thanked me for it. It's just this very cozy television show, you know. So I'm not going to tell you that you're doing depression wrong, but you got to try it. You got to try not showering for like three days and be in a blanket cocoon and watch Pride and Prejudice and know that this is almost over. Your depression is almost over at that point. I promise. But yes, so that's that's a joke that uh, really stood out to me and I keep thinking about Depression Barbie and... I, I would go see it again. Too bad we're not in the same city, Brandon. I would go see it again with you. It just felt really good that like a mainstream comedy was actually funny. Yes. And that people liked it. Yes. <laughs> and that it looked good. It looked like, good. People actually put craft into like how it looked. Oh, God. All those weird like Busby Berkeley numbers 
<laughs> just happened yeah, out of ballet. nowhere. Oh my god. I saw some sort of behind the scenes footage where they were showing the mechanisms that like raised and lowered the waves in the sort of like painted Oh, that's so good. Boating and other sequences. And I was like really impressed. I couldn't believe that they had actually gone to the trouble of doing that. Like it's like stagecraft. Yeah. It's all very like classic film stagecraft, like classic musical stagecraft, I guess I should say, um, even if it's not. Like it's got big musical energy without having constant musical numbers. <laughs> yeah. I'll say the line that stuck with me the most is whenever uh, Barbie is upset that um, America Ferreira's daughter has called her a fascist. And she says, I don't even own the railroads or the means of yes. production. It's so good. <laughs> it was so Loved good. It. Yeah. I was just thinking about her physical comedy when she gets depressed and gives up and just sits on the lawn and falls over like a doll. Yes. Ugh. That's just a good psych gag. Once again, she's just, she's so good. She's such a good actress. And a lot of the discourse in the past month has been about how Ryan Gosling steals that movie from under her. And he does not. How sad it is that like a feminist movie has like a more interesting male lead than a what? female one. No, I think. And I don't disagree. Really I, that at all. Yeah. I yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. I think the thing is people are, predisposed to be anti skinny blonde women in movies these days so they don't really they're like oh she's just pretty rather than i think paying attention to the fact that she's amazing in it and just like the perfect casting and also just all of those classic barbie outfits oh my god so good also forgot that she is in the other like only great mainstream studio movie of the year so far which is in asteroid city she has a small moment that i completely forgotten about as well just, I guess, put her in mainstream movies and they'll have, like, they'll, they'll be good automatically, right? A higher success rate, for sure. But the other movie I watched, it was also very good, and I know it was one of y'all's favorites from last year, is uh, Triangle of Sadness. Ooh, let's get into it. I really, really enjoyed it, and at the same time was like, this is one of the most disgusting movies I've ever seen, but I really enjoyed it. It's so funny to me that like the major events of this plot kick off and not because of anything that is like a moment of overt self-oriented selfishness on the part of the rich. Yeah. It is uh, everything hinges upon them doing something nice for the little poor people. Oh, they should be able yeah. to come out and have a turn. And then this the entire crew of the Everyone. ship in single file takes one joyless plunge into the ocean <laughs> long enough to like completely fuck up all of their uh dinner and give everyone food poisoning like the events are set into motion by like you know someone who lives far above the poverty line being like patronizingly charitable which i yes. think is part of the fun Yes, and not um, listening to the crew when they're like, uh, no thanks. Also great. I'm just surprised by like how many of us enjoyed this. I think every single Swamp Flicks contributor has seen it at this point and you know, positively responded to it. Versus like most film nerds absolutely hate this movie. Think it's one of the worst movies of the past few years. And wow. that, you know, Ruben Oslin is a hack or whatever. And to me, it's just like, do you not like to laugh? Do you not like to go out with your friends and laugh? At rich people's expense, because no. I had a great time watching this in theater. But I think the other thing is, like, I think we all embrace the fact that life is disgusting, honestly. Well, yeah, maybe there is a little bit of snottiness about the John Waters level of, yes. like, vomit and shit in the I was, middle section. Okay, 
I literally was thinking as I was watching it, this is like Boonwell meets John Waters. I think that's accurate. And, it's so you know, good. <laughs> I think it's successful in the movie too. Like it made me laugh a lot. Yes. But also it's the same cynical contingent that brought the inevitable backlash to Barbie as yes. well, which is like, it's not political enough or it's not smart enough about its politics or its politics are thin or whatever. Yeah. And to me, it's just like, it can be cathartic to laugh about things that are agreeable politically. Not every movie has to like challenge me on a philosophical level and like how I think about the world. Sometimes it's okay to like cheer along and laugh. Yeah. And uh, which I think both movies hit that mark. Yeah. I think sometimes it's just good enough for it to be like on the right side. Like I don't, I don't need everything like you said to be digging in deep. If the jokes are funny. Yeah. Now, if I'm like sitting in a comedy and I'm like nodding, but not laughing, then sure. Yeah. But, uh, but yes, Woody Harrelson and the crazed Russian guy, just like having an argument about communism over like the broadcast speaker as everybody's just like puking and shitting their guts out is like the funniest thing. <laughs> yeah, it's a funny bit. So long. <laughs> I would even stand up for the third act, which I feel like gets the most sort of like criticism that I, I thought it was a very funny, like kind of prestige drama version of reality television. Yes. And how, people take delight in watching the sort of comforts of modern life being stripped from people and yeah. just watch the social situation devolve. Mm-hmm. It, g- it gave me the same feeling as like the few times I did tune into Survivor in the early 2000s when it was a new show. Yes. But, you know, hitting the same political targets as the earlier sections. I laughed throughout. Yeah, I, I laughed throughout too. And, you know, it's interesting because I guess with the exception of it being absolutely disgusting, like, it had like a lot of the same sort of vibes and themes as like Parasite, which everybody loved, you know? Yeah. So, you know, maybe it is just because people can't handle the fact that sometimes poop and puke is funny. The rich are just like us. They shit their pants one leg at a time, just like you and me. Exactly. <laughs> also, oh, that bit with the hand grenade. I seem to remember, Brandon, that you you thought that one was the one moment that it went a little too far and it's farce. Like it was a little that, too. That gag was a little cute yeah. to mm. me. It was just a little too adorable and like too fine of a little button yeah, to yeah. put on the joke. But maybe I would feel differently on a second watch. I don't know. It it has a it has a Looney Tunes quality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah, for true. me, subtlety might just be dead. I think maybe I just have fallen too much into that world. It's funny because within the past few years, there have been so many of these movies to the point where like Netflix is making like, you know, woke slashers, you know, that make fun of the rich that are just terrible because they don't understand at all. Like, you know, it's just they're just marketing it that way and using buzzwords without any understanding of like the politics of it. Yeah. And there were so many movies in the past few years following Parasite that have that topic because the the menu also came out last year and there was another one earlier in the year and um, Infinity Pool and all of that. And it's funny because even though I could recognize that the menu was something I would normally enjoy, it felt like I had had a glut of that particular kind of social commentary to the point where I didn't care that much whenever I was watching the menu. But then there's something about just the lack of sentimentality and the lack of subtlety in the triangle of sadness that really brought it back around. Yeah, yeah. I think Infinity Pool got the Raw's deal in that group because it came like right after White Lotus season two wrapped up and they're set at a very similar resort. 
type uh, location. And yeah, people were already tired of talking about Triangle of Sadness because it was like Oscar season around that time too. Mm. Which is uh, that to me, like after watching it, I was like, I cannot believe this was like nominated for that. I mean, that only makes it funnier. Yeah, to me. I know. <laughs> I know. It was wild to me. Octogenarians were it. like watching this on a DVD screener. Yeah. <laughs> it's like so funny to me. But, uh, and with Infinity Pool though, like, I feel like there's an extra layer going on there where it's about this like self-hating Nepo baby who feels very frustrated that he can't get his work out. Uh, and that when it does go out, people receive it very tepidly. Like, I think it's a more personal work than some of these broad satires are, but it gets lumped in with the rest of them. So it's like the calls coming from inside the house on that one in a funny way. I, I, I agree. I, I see that like interpretation. And maybe Ruben Oslin should have uh, some more self-awareness for that as well. Cause it's not like he doesn't go, to the Cannes Film Festival every year and drink champagne with these people and like ask them for movie donations. Uh, <laughs> his, his last couple of movies have just been like riffing on them really hard. But also, you know, I guess in that case, there's kind of the self insert like Woody Harrelson character who's just like, I'm a terrible socialist. <laughs> but I also think you can be around people and be immersed in that crowd and still mercilessly mock them. Yeah, but there's no self implication really. Yeah. There's no like, self-interrogation there it's just like oh these people are awful you should hear the things they say in private but without like really digging into like your awfulness as well yeah not saying that that's required it's just interesting how like impersonal it feels compared to infinity pool i think that what you're looking for is the square because that one is about you know being like an artistic curator and the you know which is in in many ways that's like the metaphor of of being a director it's like he's curating all these ideas and bringing them together and you know organizing and orchestrating them and in that one the self-insert character would be this curator who is horrible just like a horrible person to be around and to deal with a total coward (laughs) yeah you know there's that great scene that was in the trailer with elizabeth moss where she's like what is my name and then she's just like ah uh, are you serious? Do you not know? So <laughs> I really, yeah, I think what you're looking for, if if you're looking for your description of what you wanted from this one, or not what you wanted, but like that lack of um, self-inspection, the square is where you're going to find that. Yeah. And I watched that after this one. So you're totally right. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it was funny as well. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, been my, my watching experience lately. Brandon, what have you, what have you been up to? What What are you watching? It's been so long. Well, last time we talked, I was at the height of Turtle Mania. I was just mainlining Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies every day. I was so Mm -hmm. excited for you, by the way. You were living your best life, truly. I have brought that project to a close. So if you want to see a ranking of all 10 Ninja Turtles movies, best to worst, I have published this. Why you would want to read such a thing, I do not know. Well, I did read it. Um, I, I I was very pleased at how highly you placed Turtles Forever. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I wanted to bring that up, too, because last time we talked, y'all had mentioned that being like a highlight in the series. And yeah, I would say the three Ninja Turtles movies, if you're going to recommend them to anyone, you know, the original one from 1990 with the Jim Henson costumes oh, I feel yeah. like has a, a magic to it. And Vanilla Ice. That's, That's in the second one. Secret of yeah. the Ooze. That did not hold up as well for me. That movie it was a, a little too cowabunga dude like constant catchphrases and like zany antics to the point that i just felt very numb watching it um the new one mutant mayhem from this year is very good it's got that sort of spider-verse style of computer animation that feels very tactile and intricate and like well thought out but applied to this really grotesque topic like the best 
Ninja Turtles movies are the ones that are really hideous and like get into like the gross sewer grime of the <laughs> the property. And I, you know, I thought the one from this year captured the spirit of that very well. But yeah, in the top three, I would also say Turtles Forever from 2009, which y'all had said was a particularly good one. I was very delighted watching it. I, th- I think it's a very funny comedy. Um, it is a series finale to a 2000s era Ninja Turtles animated show that I've never seen. But in the finale, they pull a metaverse plot where they um, cross over with the 1980s Ninja Turtle cartoon, which I grew up with. And they bring in the characters from the 80s into the 2000s one. The setting in the 2000s is a little more grounded, if you can believe it, for a Ninja Turtles property. Yeah, it's got like <laughs> it's got kind of Dark Knight sort of energy where it's like, we're yeah. going to make this more realistic and grounded. Gritty Turtles. And those characters are completely annoyed with the pizza chomping, <laughs> cowabunga dude, turtle-rific characters from the 80s one. Because they're basically all Michelangelo. It's like, oops, all goofball. And everyone just like constantly riffing just drives everyone in the 2000s property nuts. And it's very funny fish out of water comedy. And I guess where it gets like really clever that like cranks it up a notch is that both of those sets of turtles then get trapped in the timeline of the 80s zine culture alt comics where the turtles originated. And those characters are even more grounded and gritty because the whole joke of it was like imagine if we took this title seriously and if all of these turtles were batman and were dark and brooding all the time so those turtles find both sets annoying it's like another layer deeper into the serious tone Um, and they copy the sort of zine risograph style art in the animation as well which you know adds another layer of like visual artistry to it yeah it's really cool looking yeah, like this movie premiered at 10 a.m. on a Saturday. <laughs> it's like it's big, you know, red carpet rollout. And I think it's like a significantly fun, clever Ninja Turtles film. I laughed a lot throughout in a way I did not expect to. The, this was one that I discovered like on cable. Like it was <laughs> I was living in one of those State Street apartment co- buildings where somebody in the 90s had slipped $50 to the cable guy to hook up the whole building. So we all had basic cable. Um, And there's something to be said about, like, you know, sometimes on a Saturday morning, if you want to watch cartoons, it's nice to just, like, passively receive them. Like, I could go right now on any given Saturday morning and put on Max and start up Adventure Time or whatever, but that's not the same as just like turning on the television and just passively receiving things. And just watching that, like discovering Turtles Forever on cable television on a Saturday morning, possibly even the premiere. I don't know. If you're telling me that that's when it premiered, I might have been watching that just like randomly and accidentally. It it was like a, a very strange, fun experience that you just would not have expected. Like this was not something that I would have thought to ever seek out. But because it just happened to be on television, I watched the whole thing and loved it low these many years ago and i'm glad to hear that it held up for you you know that my opinion of it is my high opinion of it held up uh or that you agreed at least yeah i highly recommend it it's very fun it's up there with the best of the franchise as spread out and bizarre as it is i did catch up with one more title from the 2000s that i probably should have seen sooner which is i went to the theater to watch the neon 
4K restoration of Old Boy, Park Chan Wook's film from the early two mm. thousands. Oh yeah, I I watched that not that long ago, and I was like, I don't think this holds up for me, but. I, I'll, I'll see how you felt about it. Well, it's a first time watch. And you think that because I do sort of gravitate towards like edgy genre cinema that I would have seen this sooner. But maybe it's because people are so in love with it. And like they are very in love with it. Yes. That um, you got to see this fucked up movie kind of like recommendation gets kind of annoying when you hear it a thousand times. Mm-hmm. And to the point where I felt like I'd already seen the movie without having watched it. Like I knew about the big twists reveals about the depth of the revenge and i also knew about the big hallway fight with the hammer like i might have even seen gifs of that shared around every now and then but that is the best part of the movie so to have that spoiled is you know honestly i really enjoyed it though like it might have been the audience experience of like squirming in my seat along with a packed theater of people like every time there's like acts of like dental gore you know, they were like audible, like, oh, shuddering from like everyone yeah. around me. <laughs> and, you know, it is from an early 2000s era of like torture porn aesthetics. Uh, there's a lot of like sickly fluorescent lighting in this. The main plot involves someone being tortured and kept in isolation for 15 years, I believe, um, in this like small single cell. So it's very like saw in a way. And once he gets let out of that cell, he has like five days to seek his revenge and solve the mystery of who is torturing him. And that just becomes a bigger torture box that he's let out in. Like he's not actually free. He's still being tormented from above by this mysterious figure. And uh, it has like a comic book kind of feel to it that I don't want to say is timeless, but isn't as rooted in that torture porn era. But to me, it felt of a piece with like saw and hostile and also like the European artsier versions of that. Like Calvair was one I saw in theaters this year or like inside or martyrs or whatever that whole like new French extremity style of torture porn, um, which I think is like generally interesting filmmaking. And I, I would put this up there with that crop of movies, like nothing I love dearly is like a personal favorite, but at least does something more interesting than the American equivalent, which is your Eli Roth's of the world. But what I want to say is like, even though I knew the details of the revenge and I knew exactly how gross everything was going to get. I didn't know the reasoning behind it and I didn't know who was doing it to the main character and I didn't know why they were doing it to him. So like actually as a mystery film and like solving the case and like going on this noir tour of Busan, like and Seoul, I think he goes to a couple cities uh, trying to figure out who's doing this to him. And why? Like, I actually was on the hook. Like, okay, I really know, need to know why someone would go to these lengths and, like, torture someone for 15 years. Like, what did you do to this person? And so I found the mystery aspect satisfying, even though I knew all the grisly details. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I think my problem was, uh, you know, it had that aesthetic that I, I, I don't know if it works for me anymore. But I think it goes along with what we were saying about uh you know mission impossible 2 where it just feels very uh new metally in a lot of ways you know <laughs> yeah it's definitely rooted in a time and i didn't like that style of horror when it came out even like i remember getting dragged to see saw 2 in theaters it's like one of the only ones i've seen in the franchise because i just have no interest in it at all and you know hating the experience and you even hear it sometimes when 
reviewers like NPR or like so, sort of like mainstream media outlets don't cover genre stuff. We'll talk about a movie like mm-hmm. Get Out and they're like, well, this isn't actually a horror. This is more of a social thriller. And yeah. horror movies are gross and are in these dingy basements where people get their, their teeth pulled out under fluorescent mm-hmm. lighting. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, your idea uh-huh. of horror is so limited and so rooted in a very specific time that like, it's probably just critics that grew up around the same time we were coming up and just happened to see whatever was in theaters in the early 2000s. So I'm not super stoked about returning to that era, but I do think the non-American films that played with that aesthetic maybe did something more interesting than with it than just the saw traps and hostile hostile. Yeah. Which I think I might've saw in VHS with friends and I have no recollection of the details. I saw that one in theaters, uh, and I remember the friend that I was with, when we got out of the movie, I turned to her and I said, if you were ever trapped there, I would leave you behind, and I hope you would leave me behind too. (laughs) I do want to say that at the beginning of the summer, Boomer and I were trying to meet up to go see a movie, and there was just like jack shit out that seemed interesting at all. And now that it's the end of the summer, and Barbie has racked up every dollar available in the market, I again find myself in this dry spell where there's just like nothing out right now that I find remotely interesting. Like it'll ramp up soon when we get closer to Halloween. So there's like, you know, spooky movies out. And then right after Halloween is like the whole flood of like prestige content for the rest of the year, which is not normally my favorite time of year anyway, but you know, there'll be more interesting stuff out to watch. It'll break up the monotony at least. Yeah. This old boy release I thought was, an encouraging idea of what to do in these dead zones. Uh, the same week this played, they also played this um, at the same theater at the broad. They played the mother and the whore, which is this like four hour French new wave movie that was also digitally restored recently. And to me, like those were cracking the code. Like this is what you do in the downtime. You play repertory stuff that people haven't seen on screens in the past 20 years or if ever, like this was a right. new watch for me. Like, it just felt like, okay, this is what you shouldn't be doing. If the studios aren't providing any fresh content for you to sell popcorn, like, you could be seeking out these repertory titles, which might even become even more relevant as these SAG Astra strikes drag on, which they should until the studios cough up and pay people what they're worth. But, like, there's a whole century of cinema you can pull from that people would gladly go out to see and, you know, you could sell popcorn to keep the lights on. I I do think that there are some theater companies that do already do that. Like I've been living, you know, I've already mentioned Austin enough times on the podcast. I can stop um, doing my don't talk to me bit. But like, you know, we have the Austin Film Society Cinema, which shows new releases from like, you know, uh, like independent releases. But also like the Alamo Draft House, for as long as I've been living here, they show restoration prints of things. They have Weird Wednesday. They have Terror Tuesday. And then they've even started doing, you know, more recent stuff. But even like the chain theaters that are like nationwide, like Galaxy, they every time I go, they're like, oh, you know, on Sundays this month, we're going to be doing. And it's not old boy. It's certainly not like things that people have never seen in theaters. But it's like, oh, come see The Wizard of Oz on the big screen or Tombstone or uh, Back to the Future, you know, your classic favorites. So there, there is that probably in many of the places where our listeners might be yeah. living now. You just have to like, 
don't just Google like whatever you want to see and then Showtime. Like, actually go to your theater's website. I mean, Boomer, I think we are uh, particularly lucky because I think we're both in towns that care about films. This is true. Portland, we've always had that. We have a very historic theater here that has always played like old stuff when they have nothing else to play. And recently they've taken to playing RRR anytime they don't have anything else to play, which is pretty great. So yeah, I mean, I think we're a little bit spoiled and I don't understand why New Orleans isn't more like that considering that the film industry was there. Well, New Orleans only has two theaters in the city proper, which I've become very aware of now that I don't drive anywhere and I take the bus. Like yeah, you can only get wild. to the Britannia, which now has two locations, and mm-hmm. the Broad. Mm-hmm. What about Canal yeah. Place? Did that close? The Britannia bought that. That's, That's their Britannia second location. Now. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Which is pretty cool, but yeah. So every Sunday morning at the Britannia Uptown, their original location, they have a classic movie of the week. And to be honest, it's pretty thin Turner Classic Movie style programming. You can catch a lot of Hitchcocks there, but like. Nothing too adventurous. Yeah, stuff that's really cheap to license at this point. Yeah. And then Pertania downtown, since they bought the Canal Place spot, which has very traditionally been an art house theater in the city and like where we've seen most of our, you know, artsier films if you've lived here for a decent amount of time. Yeah, I was going to say that's where I saw many uh, Wes Anderson and the like. Saw my first Guy Madden movie there, you know? Yeah. So they have a series now called Wildwood, which is on Thursday nights and plays Criterion Channel style picks. Sometimes a little more adventurous stuff. I just saw Desperate Living there recently. We talked about it in the last oh, episode. Oh, nice. Which was really a, a treat to see with the crowd because it had been a long time for me. Yeah. And they also every now and then will do a program where they play like once a week for a month, an anime feature or something. But like between them and the broad, there's really not that many screens to play around with. And you have to do your Barbies and your blue beetles to like keep up with the AMCs out in the suburbs. So I don't want to like be down on those two theaters for like doing what they have to do to survive. But I would love if there was just more (laughs) because I am someone who likes to go to the movies about once a week. And, you know, lately it's feeling pretty dead. And I feel like this repertory stuff, every time I go, there is a crowd of people, you know? Yeah. I've been to the broad recently where they did like some Greg Rocky movie and like some John Carpenter movies and like people show up for them because their audience and their customer base is artsy weirdos for the most part. And yeah, that old boy screening looked pretty much sold out to me and people were like very much into it. And, had some like post-film discussions in the lobby and were hanging out and you know it felt like an actual film culture which is not something the city really has. So I'm referencing a kind of British folk horror, the kind of one of the only unique bits of kind of British film culture that we have. I don't mean to criticize British film, but you know it's, it's such a British things folk horror and specifically English and I wanted to make a Cornish folk horror rather than an English folk horror which is why we're using the Cornish language and rather an English folk horror is all about stripping away the the pastoral idyll to find the darkness underneath and actually I think this film's one level more the pastoral English idyll isn't was never there anyway and so the surface is the ground and what we do is dig under the ground to find the sort of 
the malevolent forces that are within the ground, which in, which in this case are kind of Mother Nature rather than anything sort of human. One of the repertory screenings that did play at the Broad recently was they screened a 4K restoration of The Wicker Man for a week. Oh, beautiful. Uh, which I think you cannot speak about Ennis Main, our main topic of discussion today, without mentioning folk horror tradition in England, and especially Wicker Man is like one of the cornerstones of that. And this is a movie that's very rooted in the past. Ennis Main is a film by Mark Jenkin, who is a filmmaker from Cornwall, and he's kind of playing with English folk horror tradition. But it also, I think, is very in line with the big standout horrors of this year. Like, it's, it's kind of up to date in a weird way as well, even though it looks intentionally vintage. Because if you think about the bigger breakouts this year, as far as like horror nerd cred, or at least the, the trouble starters that have gotten a lot of people talking, um, Skin and Marink and The Outwaters are very buzzy horror titles that play with sort of like slow cinema experimentation and, you know, sort of lull the viewer into this quiet dialogue light, you know, hypnotic state, and then spook you with loud, scary images uh, once you've sort of been calmed into submission. And Ennis Main does that as well. And it felt in April watching this in the theater, I had already like experienced both Skin and Marink and the Outwaters and enjoyed them and thought they were interesting. But watching this, after those two, I was like, oh, I get it. Like, this actually clicked. We're like, the slow cinema experiment being mixed with um, sort of traditional genre horror film stuff, you know, in that Wicker Man tradition in this case, um, actually, like, made a lot of sense to me and felt like a very significant work. And I think it has stuck with me up there with Barbie, <laughs> uh, appropriately enough, as, like, one of the more interesting visual pieces from this year and one of the more successful movies all around on like a conceptual level. Uh, Mark Jenkin made a name for himself in Britain around 2019 when he released this movie Bait, uh, which is a small drama set in a Cornwall fishing village. It is shot on this like 16 millimeter mechanical clockwork camera. So, like, the shots can only be, I think, less than 30 seconds long because you wind up this sort of mechanical wow. thing in it. And it shoots until the wind-up wears itself out. And then he processed the film himself. Um, so it has an old-timey kind of Guy Madden patina to it, mm -hmm. but it's because he's actually using old camera equipment and old film stock. So it's sort of authentically so aged. Did he do that for this one as well? So in this one, he used the same camera, but he used color film. Okay, yeah. A little more complicated to process, so he did not process it yes. himself. Yes. Oh, yeah. Particularly because he wanted a super saturated color effect. So, like, he sent it yes. to a processing studio to do it for him. Yeah. So, the reason I was wondering that, I was like, this looks like it was shot on 70 million, like 70 films, fil 70s film stock. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I don't know that, it, I don't know that the film stock was as aged as it was in Bait, but in this one, there is some wear and tear to the film itself and just like handling it yourself and like putting in the little reels mm -hmm. and your little camera and, you know, stitching it together as an editor, you're going to get some like sort of thumbprints on, on the print. You're going to get some like little scratches and things that shows like a human being made this with their hands. Yeah. Mark Kermode, which is basically like the British equivalent of Roger Ebert was a huge fan of bait and he has been, singing the praises of that movie for the past few years. And I've been very frustrated because it had no American distribution. 
And finally, Neon picked up his new movie, Ennis Main, and released bait after the fact once this was in theaters this year. So both of his movies are both out on Hulu right now. I still think Ennis Main is the more significant work, uh, probably because it's the first one I saw out of the two. And um, also, like, we tend to gravitate towards genre filmmaking here uh, because Ennis Main is a sort of hypnotic, non-linear horror film. Like, it just sort of speaks to my sensibilities more. Uh, the color is very vibrant, which, you know, makes it pop oh, a little more. Oh, it's so gorgeous. And in both cases, the camera he's using does not have sync sound. Like, there's no way to marry the sound to the film. Um, so what he does is he films separately and then does the sound in fully after the fact. Hmm. So when people talk, they have this sort of like old timey, almost like you're hearing them over the telephone. Cause he's, he's recording all of that himself as well. In Ennis Main, he sort of leans into that and has as little dialogue as you really need to get the story across. And the sound is more this like establishing a atmosphere than it is like, you know, getting dialogue to fill in the gaps of the logic. One thing I heard him say in an interview uh, was that after COVID, after not having hearing a film in a proper theater for a few years and like returning to that atmosphere, he was really blown away by the idea that sound can come from anywhere and not just from a single source. Like if you watch movies on your living room TV or watch them on your laptop or whatever, you're not going to get the same immersive sound that you get in a proper theater. And uh, watching Ennis Main in an actual cinema or watching it with like headphones, I think the audio is like a very essential part of it. I also will say that I had a I had a very immersive experience with this in the theater that I found very hard to replicate at home. Especially, I made the mistake of watching it on Hulu, and there's like ad breaks for like The Little Mermaid on Disney Plus every five minutes. Wow, I did not get any ad breaks oh, on mine. You, you must be on a nicer version of Hulu than I am. <laughs> I, I guess I don't know, or I I mean they loaded them all up at the beginning. I think I'm very glad to happened. hear that because I found it very disruptive to the rhythm of the film. And I would recommend anyone who's interested in this watching it without ads. <laughs> uh, and also at the stream even, um, because there's very heavy film grain in the style of visual degradation that he's going for. There's very heavy individual film greens on the screen that my stream was buffering into these like flattened out grids. Oh no. Oh, I can't. Oh, what a horrible way to experience yeah. this movie. <laughs> so yeah, at home, I found it a little distracting. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to speak to what I felt in April when I first saw this at Canal Place Britannia, which we were talking about earlier. It stars Mary Woodvine. She is the main character in the movie and possibly, depending on your personal interpretation of events, maybe the only character in the movie. Uh, yeah. She is a volunteer scientist. She has volunteered to go to this remote outpost on the titular Ennismain, which is a Cornish term for Stone Island. So... The entire island is this Moorish atmosphere where you can see the heather blowing in the wind. And the only like real structure there, besides the little shack that she's living in by herself, is this stone monument um, that sort of juts out kind of like Stonehenge. And uh, most of these British folk horrors are going to be revolving around these ancient stones. Like Most of the magic in those movies comes from that sort of monument. There were things like in the earth I was thinking of, too, because right, the ancient right. stone sort of thing, yeah. And of the water in this case, too, because they're surrounded by water. It's a little island. And there's a lot of, like, references visually to sailors and miners who would have been, like, working in the tumultuous uh, sea 
uh, you know, risking their lives for labor. But she is alone on this island studying this like little clump of flowers on the edge of the cliff, which look so fake. Like they're little hand-cut arts and craft paper flowers. They're very intentionally artificial. Uh, and they're, they're on the edge of a cliff, and every day she goes out in this sort of a Jean Dielman-style rhythm, just measuring that there's no change in these flowers every day, and writing in her little notebook literally the words, no change. And kind of like in Jean Dielman, after a few days of watching her go through this routine sort of wordlessly, you get really hooked into the small changes in her routine, like the little things that happen differently. And then there's a major change around like day four or five of what we've watched where lichen starts to grow in the flowers. And then the lichen has this hallucinatory effect in her perception of reality where like she is no longer a reliable collector of data on this little island because the lichen is fucking with her. And she starts to see it grow on this scar that she has on her belly that's very mysterious. And then other characters start populating the island, even though there's been no indication that people are actually visiting her, we see a younger child who may be her daughter or maybe a younger version of herself, uh, because later we see her, the younger version, earn the scar that we've seen in Mary Woodvine's stomach. Like we, right. we see the young girl <laughs> accrue that scar. Um, there's also a man who may be a domestic partner or may be the man who delivers her supplies once a month and brings tea to her. Uh, the tea is a very major aspect. If you weren't sure that this was an English adjacent film, oh my God. Uh, when she runs out of tea, it's a major crisis. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I made the joke. I was like, this is what happens when you run out of tea. Like you just go crazy. Yeah. Cause I, I feel this. I felt that deeply. I was like, no, <laughs> no, not the tea. And ar around the time that she sees the lichen growing on her own body, like not just the flowers. And around the time she runs out of tea, and runs out of her little cans of petrol that keep the generator going. So she has electricity at night so she can read books by the electric lights and, you know, warm up her bath and stuff like that. The movie just sort of completely loses grip with reality and just floods the screen with this escalating, hypnotic, hallucinatory imagery that I found absolutely electrifying and in the truest sense committed to dream logic where... There's not enough information for you to piece together a clear narrative and support your reading of the film because it is just very sensory based. And either you're electrified by the combination of lights and sounds in a way that like gets you excited about the art of the cinema that's on screen, or you are puzzling your way through it logically. Like, well, who is that represent and what's going on here? I will say there are some larger themes and I think we can get into like what the movie might mean to you personally and like what you think of it as a statement on Cornwall as a culture. But I, I kind of just want to know out the gate how this worked for you as a sensory experience at home because I found it very difficult to sort of be hypnotized by it the way I was in the theater. Was it like an engaging experience or was it more just like an aesthetic one? Um, I found it really engaging actually i i was definitely hypnotized by it and i loved all the colors and just the imagery like so much um yeah i was like oh yeah this is my jam as far as imagery and stuff goes just beautiful colors pretty pictures <laughs> so i i had a good experience i really enjoyed this 
I, I didn't have the buffering issues that you did. I didn't have the loading issues. Every, like all of the, there's a lot of color noise, you know, that is going on in the developed film mm -hmm. that, you know, uh, it's beautiful and it really contributes to it. And it gives, it gives the whole thing a sense of being of the time, but also that sort of soporific quality that it has where it's kind of sleepy mm -hmm. and like this was a movie one of those movies where there were moments where i had to struggle to stay awake and it's not because i wasn't engaged it's because i was like being hypnotized by it where it was like it it, it so closely resembled dream logic quote unquote that like it, it was like a seamless slip into actual dreams if that makes any sense yeah and honestly i felt one of the reasons i wanted you to see it is that it, i felt like it is a good marriage of the two things that we kind of value in storytelling it and like, sure is the scientific process of her studying these little changes in the flowers and like literally taking the temperature of the dirt yes. every day and like measuring how long it takes for the stone to fall in the water in the well that scientific process, like opening her up to this like dream logic through the lichen growth, where then the movie allows itself to just let go of the handlebars and let happen what happens. And like, it's literally just Mark Jenkins playing around with the filmmaking tools he has at his disposal, which are very limited on purpose. And like seeing what he can evoke, like what power, what poetry he can unlock with these little simple handheld machines. Yeah, I just felt like it was a good middle ground between what you and I personally look for in movies and I, it's interesting that you brought up um wicker man because I, I will admit actually i hadn't thought about that at all in the context of this yeah i actually had not really a, as well so my first thought was of images which part of that is because this is also it falls into my other favorite genre which is women on the verge yeah. um this is very much a women on the verge movie but there are specific evocations of things that are present in images specifically um and there's one shot that i wouldn't say it's stolen i would say it's an homage but you know there's a scene where the volunteer is like she's walked from this you know monument stone back to the house and every time that she walks by it we see her eclipsed by it like she the 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 monument stone remains uh, between us as the viewer and her as the subject when she walks behind it on her daily route. And she comes all the way up to the house and she looks back at the stone and then sees herself again. And that's very much like the scene in images where the main character, you know, she gets out of the car on top of the mountain and then looks down and sees herself at the house. And then there's a reverse cut and she's she's there looking up at herself again um there's something about like in that movie it, i'm not really sure what it's meant to evoke but i think here it's supposed to evoke like the sort of uh repetitiveness of a haunting i think i'm not uh you know i didn't personally necessarily connect that the lichen was hallucinatory but that's a perfectly valid reading and it makes sense but to me it just seemed like more part of the strangeness of what was yeah. happening um more than it being a Maybe catalyst so. necessarily I, I think there's like no definitive thing you could say about how or why things are happening in this and fully support your reading in the text i think there's literally no answer to the reasoning behind some of the things that happen here it just has to work emotionally for you so i i got more of a plot sort of carnival of souls sort of vibe like 
I kind of thought she was dead the whole time. Yeah, I think that that's possible. I, I again, it's like Brandon said. I don't think that it's really like there's there's literally not enough information to draw like a conclusion that we could all agree is like yes, that's absolutely definitively what happened. But I would agree that that's that was one of the things that I thought as a possibility of what was happening throughout. Yeah. So before the lichen starts growing on the flower, there's this news story on the radio about this monument to a shipwreck, but the monument to the shipwreck is dated after her journal entries ah is it yeah yeah okay so her journal entries are 73 yeah and it said and i read the monument as 1897 oh no no the monument on the radio because there's a radio story talking about a monument being vandalized that was to a to a sailor that had died near this island and it had been yes. dedicated in August 1973. But then if you look in her notebook, that's all from April and May 1973. So, like, I got the, like, okay. big old, like, Carnival of Souls, like, haunting vibe from it. So, like, that was the movie that was evoked most to me. Um, is Carnival of Souls, actually, which is interesting. Um, just, like, some of the, like, ghostly, like, spooky imagery. And, like, obviously, it's more artsy than carnival souls but i I do love carnival souls so it's not an insult but yeah i i kind of got that vibe and plot from it even though it's still very like open to interpretation because really the only one we see actually in the shipwreck is the man who's been bringing her supplies so i think there's like two things you can think about there and i'm gonna evoke the most cliche buzzword i can right now which is grief yes we're like there's two levels of grief here that are like, I think at least explored thematically in some way. One is like for someone to volunteer to go to this isolated place. It's kind of like the ruffians who volunteered to go to Antarctica and the thing it's like, they're, they're there for a reason. They're not, they're running from something or like, you know, they just want to break from society for some reason. Yeah. And here, when you see these sort of like domestic scenes with her, with this younger girl or this man who's bringing the supplies on the boat, there, there does feel like there might be some sort of personal thing in her past that she's processing out yeah. here alone. And, you know, in a very like basic, all quote unquote elevated horrors of recent years are, you know, about grief and trauma. Like maybe she is going through something. Maybe she already died. There's something like sort of self-destructive about this mission that she's volunteered to pull out. And that version of grief is very personal to her and her character. And like trying to piece together what that is or what happened is a little difficult. But what I think is a little clearer is the communal grief of Cornwall being this seafaring culture where all of these men go out to sea for their jobs to go fishing or to ship crates or whatever, whatever they do for a living or, you know, mining, whatever's under the Island. There's a bunch of miners down there that she keeps looking down the grate. We know for a fact at the beginning that that's water, yeah. but later the water disappears and she sees these carnival of souls style ghouls looking back up at her, um, sometimes taunting her and sometimes just sort of looking blankly like, yeah, we're working down here. What are you looking at? And, that to me felt very clear in a way like 
if there is a theme to the movie that like stuck with me, it was the sort of communal grief for all these people lost at sea and lost to labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And her, her job out there is sort of self-destructive in a, in a same way, but it, it's more voluntary and not like this is just the way of life. And this is what the working class of that area does until your body expires. And that's textualized, right? Because in that, in that radio broadcast, they're like, this monument is to this sailor, but also to all the sailors. Yeah. Right. They're like, to it's to all of the people that we've lost to this like harsh sea upon which we depend. Yeah. And there's like a church sermon and song later on that feels like, you know, sort of a poem to the people lost. And I don't know that uh, the vocals might have even been in Cornish. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to so say, I, don't know that I, I, know what happened. I think they were in Cornish. Um, I was trying to figure that out myself. I was like, is this Cornish? Because it's it's pretty nice. And I had never heard it before. So it's a shame this movie missed TikTok's uh, sea shanties moment a couple oh of years God, ago. Right? It really could have hit with the kids. But yeah, I, I thought that was like a pretty clear theme. But like. Yeah, me jumping to the conclusion that the lichen was kicking that off. I don't know if that's just like a narrative justification in my head, but like it does feel like a traditional ghost story in a lot of ways too. Even if it's not all in her head, she's being sort of haunted by all the men who've died in and around the island. Yeah. In the water in particular. Yeah. And there's something about, so there's, there's seven blossoms, right? Mm-hmm. on this flower oh yeah and there, there are seven miners that. in the photograph oh my god there are seven women who are the milkmaids yeah seven milkmaids on the on and the seven thing. children they mentioned specifically that it was seven children as well whenever they're talking about the children singing so there is something that's sort of like consistent about the spirits that she encounters or mm-hmm. the blossoms are in some way representative possibly of the people who have been lost because there's there's also they mentioned that it was seven sailors who died in the search for the fishermen that is the uh, reason for the monument that's on the island that she actually walks past mm-hmm. but there's also the fact that one like her tea is in a like seven milkmaids tin <laughs> yeah. so it's like that just might oh, be her brain doing there's such something. a really good like visual spooky thing that happens with that tin too i don't know if y'all caught it, where like this man's face just kind of like appears in the background. Oh, it's so good. Oh no, I missed that. Oh my god, <laughs> yeah. And what's funny is like that stuff that happens. It sounds very serious, and it is like th- I, this movie did make me profoundly sad at moments. Yeah, like watching these like sort of men in their final resting place where they're also working. Like, I know it's really get- easy to get worked up about how your body is exploited until you're no longer useful for making money. Yes. But, um, <laughs> But as as much as we're talking about like the symbolism of everything and like grief and you know the visual experimentation, it's also a movie with like a very funny sense of humor. Like when she runs out of tea and it becomes a crisis, like that's a joke. Yes. And the seven milkmaids thing, like there's almost something funny about these figures from an advertisement appearing as if they're these like folkloric yes ghouls, but like. It's funny for a beat, and then it becomes really creepy, like watching them stomp in rhythm mm-hmm. to a sound that only the audience can hear. And there's also another really funny gag, too, where like um, she gets a knock on the door, which is very jarring because there's no one else on the island. And when she opens it, the, the stone monument has moved up uh, to the yes. door yeah. and knocked on it. I laughed so hard. <laughs> yeah, like there is a very clear sense of humor in what he's doing here. But like I think also it knows when to linger a beat longer to like allow the joke to play out and then to get creepy again uh, once you're done having your laugh. 
I was actually also thinking about that when you were talking about the scene from Images where she sees herself in the house and she's like looking back at herself. The amount of time that lingers and that exchange keeps going. I was getting goosebumps hearing you describe it because I was thinking about like how long they sort of silently watch each other, the two versions of herself across the way. Yeah. And, and that the version of herself that's out there is not alone. Yeah. It is. It is disquieting. <laughs> it's very. Yeah. I. I will say, you know, when I was still in the mode that I was trying to treat this like a puzzle, you know, I did assume that the woman who was with her was not like at first, I think you're supposed to think it's her daughter. daughter yeah. And then once you see she, you know, tells her, like, I don't want you playing up there on the roof. Uh, I don't want you climbing up there. And then, you know, we see what might be a flashback to that mm -hmm. same girl jumping from the roof, getting cut in the place where you know the volunteer has her scar it's like okay then it's is it is it her and the extent to which she has a relationship with the boatman is it just that he comes and goes or is there something more than that but ultimately none of that is like the point i guess and i really am excited about the idea that horror is such a bankable genre right now that you can sneak that kind of like there is no answer mm -hmm. to this illogic into theaters. Like the fact that like skin of a rink was kind of a low key hit. Oh my God. And, like, yeah. Outwaters made it past the film festival circuit. And like now that Ennis main got enough critical accolades and enough attention that the same distributor put out the guy's earlier movie, which has a lot of the same qualities, but is just a, a very grounded drama. Like, the drama was not bankable enough for this art to get out there. The horror stuff is what pulls in the crowds. So, like, I like that someone is using that vehicle to sneak that Chantal Ackerman, Maya Darren style of storytelling into theaters. Like, I don't even know that I'm necessarily a horror nerd in the right way. Like... There are people who are like horror obsessed and yeah. like all they talk about is horror and they'll go out every weekend to see what the new release is. Like they'll go see Renfield or the last voyage of the Demeter or the Pope's exorcist or whatever, like opening weekend. Like I am there. There's a new horror movie out. I need to be on top of it. And I watch horror, I think because it's one of the only genres left where you're allowed to loosen up the logic a little bit and like play yes. with form. Oh my gosh. Like there's more freedom to dick around with reality in a horror movie and people are more accepting of it in that context. And I feel like this movie maybe even goes a step too far <laughs> yeah. in that direction where like it's a horror movie in name only. Like it does feel a little bit like a pastiche of the kinds of folk horrors you'd see in Woodland's Dark and Days Bewitched. But yeah, once that aesthetic is established, it kind of just like lets go and it's just... Mark Jenkins playing around with video and audio equipment, and it's really freeing. Yeah. You don't see movies like this anymore, and in that way, it felt entirely like a throwback to me, because like, I feel like if this were made in the 60s or 70s, you would be like, oh, yes. like It would be relevant then to be like, yes, this is very Altman. But like now, if you say it, you're very like, you know, you're a nerd. So it's like... <laughs> Thanks. No, I'm just kidding. No, no. You know... You know you're a nerd. I know I am. And I'm proud we, we, of we, you. I spent 20 minutes talking about a convention. Yeah. Um, <laughs> at the top of this. So yeah, you're right. You know you're a nerd. I'm proud of you. We're all nerds. It's fine. But like now, you know, it's very like 
praising a movie like this, I think there's some sort of like, like you said, like, oh, you're not a horror fan. You're like an art movie fan. And it's, I, I don't know. I like, you know, that's part of the reason why I was really excited that something like Skin of Marine got popular is that it is so weird. And I don't, I didn't feel like it was very conventional as a horror because I do feel like it played with reality a whole lot. It wasn't just your basic slasher. Like, yeah, it was scary. I was so scared. But like, yeah, I, I just feel very, um, you know, saddened still that even through horror, this is, like you said, maybe going too far. But in the era in which like movies like this were being made, it would probably, you know, be a real, real hit. Um, I don't know. There's just something about it that's just an entire, an entire throwback, even in style, and not just in the way it looks. Kind of, you know, because we we're talking about like these pastiches of the '70s and how they do get tiring. And I think the reason this one works is like it's very legit feeling. You know, like this could be made then, and very much has the vibe, but while also having the, like you said, like elevated horror being about grief thing, like. We've all experienced so much grief these past few years. We're all talking about how our labor is exploitation. I mean, you know, it's modern and also very much a throwback. And yeah, I really, I really liked that about it. I mean, there's not that much different to it than what's achieved in Let's Scare Jessica to Death a half a century yeah. ago. Like they're kind of playing the same game, where they're both independent movies with like a very small budget trying to get as many eyeballs as possible by playing with genre, like yes. something sellable. But yeah, it, it doesn't stop there. There is something new about it. And it does feel of a piece with the slow cinema horror of mm -hmm. this year, which I don't think was all, you know, of a hive mind, you know, effort. You know, these are not filmmakers who were directly communicating say, to each other. People who couldn't be more different. I feel like even like he's right. doing stuff on film, whereas like, you know, so many other people like Cinema Rink embracing digital and like YouTube even, you know, like having that yeah. world also be in on this way is it's cool. It's a cool thing. I will say one of my misgivings about Cinema Rink and one of my hesitations for it was like, I didn't really feel like it was dedicated to its form in a very clear mm -hmm. way. Where like, it's like a YouTube creepypasta thing, but it's set in the 90s or early 2000s, but... It also has this like 70s exorcist style marketing behind it and, you know, this like film grain to it, even though it's like a digital movie. So it has all this like recent digital patina on yes, top of yeah. the genre throwbacks, which are from different eras. Mm -hmm. And to me, it became kind of a conceptual mishmash where, I don't know, I just felt kind of confused conceptually to me. Yeah. Where like Ennis Main feels like a completed project. Like it, it feels does. like someone thought this out very clearly and, you know, achieved what yes. they were going out to do. No, I I 100% agree. I I was just, you know, overall impressed that something like Cinema Rink was even a hit like at all. And yeah. I think with something like this also coming out and, you know, maybe maybe I should have more faith in people as viewers. I don't know. <laughs> like maybe we're getting to like you were saying uh off mic like there's nothing to recommend to people anymore. Like everything that's like a hidden Jim kind of feels like people know about which isn't a bad thing it's just also you know what do we even do anymore <laughs> well what I've personally done is refocus my energy on recommending movies to um, hundreds of random people online to just focusing on the six people I podcast with yes so, uh, 
I'm glad this went over well because it is kind of a gamble that someone will be able to focus on it because it is a kind of a challenging movie as far as like your attention span goes. I will say as far as like the slow cinema form is concerned, like we did a episode on that. I don't want to say genre, but maybe that medium earlier this year, that style of filmmaking. And something you'll notice is that in the digital era, those shots have gotten longer and longer where there's like a 20 minute unbroken shot on an object or a landscape. And it's really like pushing the form in that way uh, because of the cameras that we're operating with now. Because you don't have the limit of a roll of film. Like you don't have the 11 minute roll of film limit. Right. Yeah. And Mark Jenkins is dialing the clock back even further and even smaller where like he has like a 27 second shot length that he can play with. So maybe that's one of the reasons I found this more invigorating too, is that it doesn't deliberately test your patience. Mm -hmm. It is artsy fartsy experimentation, but it's not something you're like, why isn't this playing in a museum? It it actually does have a narrative flow to it and it does move along at a pretty consistent pace. And it like for lacking, you know, quote unquote, like scares is creepy. It's spooky, you know, and it all basically takes place in the daytime. Like it's daytime spooky, which is especially yeah. impressive. And I know that's because of lighting and all of that with when you're working with 60 millimeter, especially color. But like it is very hard to make the daytime spooky, you know, and I feel like movies that can pull that off are automatically just like great. That's a folk horror tradition, too, right? Yes. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Like, I mean, once again, Wicker Man, like it's all about summer festival you know and let's scare jessica to death was basically like a you know new england daytime getaway yeah (laughs) so there's that but also um you know as i was watching it i was like i really hope this was actually shot on film and not just like made to look like it was shot on film even though if it were made to look like that it did a really good job so i'm really happy to know like the technical ways it was recorded because that's amazing just like that adds so much to it and you know, I know for some people, like watching behind the scenes stuff doesn't like add to the art, but for me, it very much does. Like, I am absolutely fascinated by all of that. Um, probably why I went to school for film in the first place is, is just like all of that fascinates me. There's a good little featurette on YouTube that Neon posted. It's like 15 minutes long. Oh, yeah. I'll and it's a making up thing. Yeah. And it's mostly Mary Woodvine and Mark Jenkins like bouncing back and forth saying what the experience of filming it was like. But I thought it was interesting seeing these sort of digital behind the scenes cameras filming him film her. And like, you really do get a a contrast of like how flat and uninteresting this might have been if it were shot as like a modern digital horror versus like that aesthetic. I do like, I like Boomer was saying, I have complained before that it, it feels old hat, maybe even cowardly to sink back into tried and true aesthetics of the past instead of pushing for something new and distinctly now. But in this case, like the proof is in the pudding or whatever. Like you can tell, (laughs) you know, this movie would not have been much without that antiquated equipment. Yeah. And, you know, just the amount of technical skill to work with film is astounding. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason it's only worked with by like people with millions of dollars usually because it's so expensive. And then if you screw it up, you got to do a whole take on a whole new roll of film and it's not just like a digital thing. So yeah, it's it's always impressive to me, especially when it's a smaller production like this. Um, 
I like these movies as well, not just because of the spooky daytime vibes and the artistry and craft involved, but also because these are the only movies you're going to find people who look like normal people in. And I always love movies that feature normal looking people. It makes me feel better about a movie is when I'm like, yes, that looks like a person who would be on an island by herself. Her performance is very compelling for someone with very few lines. Yeah. Yeah, I love this one. I would give it a big recommendation. I mean, it is going to be a movie that's difficult attention span wise uh, for a lot of people. Like, uh, we haven't talked about this. I actually, since the last time we recorded, um, I read an excerpt from an interview with uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal where she was talking about how, and I assume this was related to her HBO show, The Deuce that they were getting network and producer feedback about making their work too um, demanding of an attention span. That, in fact, many networks now are specifically creating content that you're only supposed to pay attention to, like 60-65%, because they want people to only engage that much, and they expect people... They don't want to have a show that requires so much attention that if you are a person who can't put your phone down for 45 minutes and just watch a television program uninterrupted, they don't want to lose that person as a viewer. They would rather have something that's less engaging and less interesting and less demanding of a person's attention span than have them just tune out. And uh, people have been coddled by this um, for a long time. You know, smartphones have really ruined uh, people's attention spans. And this is a movie where you're going to have to put your phone in the other room. You can't have it in your pocket everybody you gotta have it in the other room but it will be worth your while that is so grim yeah (laughs) oh and a really good uh reason why you know if you are one of the suckers who has been um defending the executives in this uh wga sag strike saying that it needs to end sooner so you can get your precious content quicker these are the people running the show they're actively dismantling art so fuck them yeah (laughs) pay up yeah Take some dynamite, crack open that creaky, rusty wallet, and get it done. Well, next week on the show, we're going to talk about more vintage visual aesthetics, but we're dialing the clock back to the 1990s. Uh, We're talking about Brett Leonard as an auteur. Now, you don't know who that is, but he directed The Lawnmower Man, uh, which is a pretty infamous movie from that era. And he um, has a few films where he plays around with that Lawnmower Man VR 90s cgi style in different contexts we kind of wanted to see what else you can do with it besides the vr video game experience that i believe pierce brosnan (laughs) experiments with in that film it's been a while since i've seen it so if you are one of the few brett leonard vulgar all tourists out there next week is your week if you were literally anyone else and have only seen or heard of the lawnmower man (laughs) in his filmography uh, hopefully we have something worth expanding upon and you know digging 